Hello, everyone, and welcome to Gregorian Rant. And we're back. And we're back. In honor of Patrick Deveni. Yeah, you got to speak into the microphone. Make sure you do that. All right. Sorry, Yeah. As your pastor. Hey, everybody. So uh, Patrick and Stephanie had their baby, which is why last week we um, ran that rerun. But baby Gianna is here, and uh, I got to hold her. Really? I did, no. Baptism's coming up, too. Baptism is coming up. That's an important thing. And she, uh, so, uh, Steph and baby are doing well. Thank you for all of you out there who have been praying for them. Uh, They are doing well. The, uh, but they're out. Patrick's still recovering from his bike wreck. He can't drive yet, but he's getting close. He's out of the brace, though, isn't he? Dominantly. Dominantly. I think he has to wear it sometimes. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well. Hopefully he'll be back on the bike soon. Yeah. Hopefully Steph doesn't listen to this comment. Uh, So we have with us today, in case you haven't picked up on it, this is Father Sean Conroy and uh, I'm Father Brian Larkin. Welcome. How's priesthood going? It's been such a gift. Um, Man, sorry, I keep forgetting to talk into the mic. That's okay. Um, Yeah, it's been amazing, Uh, especially at Parish Life. The first... I think I shared this last time, but the first kind of month of priesthood was uh, just unique. Being a priest without a parish, uh, yeah. not being, not starting at the parish yet. Right, you're ordained for the people um, to serve, to be with them, you know, to give the sacraments, administer the sacraments, etc. So now that I'm actually at Lords in St. Louis, it's like this is what I'm called to do, and yeah. it's been amazing. And God is just given so much um it's super humbling to be called father especially when you know the little old lady who's 70 comes up to me who's we don't have too many of those at lords we don't have too many we do at, at st louis but we do at st louis yeah so. um but yeah being 27 they come up to you and they're just like father thank you so much and it's just it is beautiful it's humbling so yeah i love being a priest it's good to hear i do too i know people don't like it when i say this sometimes but it's still a little odd to me that I'm a priest after 10 years. 10 years. 10 years of Eleven. priest. No, it's 10. You were 2011? Okay. 2011. 10. May 21st, 2011. Nice. So 10 years of priesthood. I remember when I was ordained and thinking of guys that were 10 years in and, and thinking about, man, that's a ways in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm three months in. So Three months, 10 years, basically the same. Something like that. Something like that. 27, 41, basically the same thing. I know. 40 fun, as Father Sean says. 40 fun. Yeah. So everybody, today we're going to dive in a little bit. uh, Coming up this weekend, actually, I think by the time this comes out, uh, may have passed. I'm not sure when we're going to publish this one. But we wanted to talk today a little bit about a big feast coming up. Uh, This year it falls on a Sunday. So uh, the big feast we're going to talk about today is the Feast of the Assumption. And uh big one, I think, that is confusing for a lot of Catholics. Of course, it's really confusing for our Protestant brothers and sisters out there. Hard for them to understand what we uh, mean by that and why we believe that. So today we want to jump in a little bit to the assumption. And uh yeah, that's kind of the plan. Great. Are you an expert on the assumption? No, but I did take Mariology last year. Did you? Okay, good. We're going to lean heavily on you for this something one. like that. Yeah. Uh, also, I find it cool too because my diaconate assignment was at Assumption Parish. Oh, that's right. Welby 
Colorado. No one's ever heard of Welby. But it is a town, small town. It's right outside of... It's like in between Thornton and North Glen. Sandwiched yeah. in there. Uh, Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Father Nick Larkin. The other Larkin is pastor up there. I know. It's, there are two Larkins in our diocese. Father Nick Larkin and me. I'm kind of mean to him. You think so? Sometimes. Yeah. I don't mean to be. I just... My big thing is I'm like... I used to always tell him in seminary. I know I've told you this. When he joined seminary, I would say... There's only one Larkin in this diocese and you ain't him. That's funny. Well, it's funny because he's the only Father Nicholas right now. Uh, and then Father Nick Thompson was here and then yes. he was so upset. But now Father Nick Thompson went back to a different diocese. So. Priestly jealousies. That's right. But he's an assumption, yes. Priest drama. You gotta love it. So the assumption is a dogma of the Catholic faith. One of four Marian dogmas. What are the other... Uh, Mother of God, the Annunciation. It's tied. It's December 8th. And Immaculate Conception. There you go. Big. <laughs> you can't put me I on the it. spot like that. Sorry. Uh, yeah, so uh, big feast day. So I think one of the most odd things for people, I think this is maybe a good starting point for us today, is Pius XII defined the Immaculate Conception in the year 1954. And that just seems weird. I, and very honestly, if I didn't know kind of a little bit more about the assumption and how the church works with these things, that would weird me out. It's like, really? 1954? Yeah. That this was defined? And it seems like, you know, 2,000 years later, why would the church kind of define something in 1954? That's a great question. What do you think? Well. <laughs> we just go back and forth there. We'll be like, that was a great question. No, thank you. That was a great question by you. That's right. Touche. Touche. Well, it's tricky because things are defined in the church when they are under attack, right? So we think of um, Arianism, Council of Nicaea. Yeah. Uh, 325 AD. 325 AD. Uh, it's the, um, what's defined then? The, uh, At Nicaea, the divinity of Christ. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah. divinity, humanity of Christ, the hypostatic union. Because that was what was under attack. And so one of the questions we need to ask then is, why in 1950 did they, did the church, Pius XII, ex-cathedra, define the assumption? Yeah. What was under attack? And I think that's a good question to wrestle with. And to me, I would say, Mary, uh, devotion to Mary was under attack. Uh, people had kind of lost the sense of what Mary's role was specifically in the church, specifically as mother of the church. Um, and so kind of navigating that. Um, but still, that's not necessarily something that was under attack. So this is, I don't know, we, we talked about this in Mariology class with Father John Nepple, and that's something we talked a lot about. And it's hard to kind of like pinpoint. Yeah. What Doesn't Pius XII, I think he talks about it specifically also as the world kind of needs hope. And there's, there's a lot of despair kind of happening across the world. You're in the post-World War II era. There's questions about the future of the, the Cold War has been kind of starting. Mm -hmm. And uh, it seems like there was just, and probably in Europe, I would think, especially following World War II, civilization seems to have collapsed. And it seems to me that Pius XII wanted to call people back to, there is hope. There's a great hope. And it's not just the hope of this world. But Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Uh, Mary gives us hope. 
And one of the things that, you know, we could say, and that I think the 20th century authors and um, theologians really pushed for was to see Mary and the church as one, as one kind of reality. And so the church also gives us hope. Mary gives us hope. Um, and in the assumption, we can talk more about that specifically how, um, but I think 20th century, I think Pius is kind of touching on something there that Mary and the church give us hope of an eschatological reality, yeah. fighting against the kind of World War II and, and the, the bloodiest century in history. Yeah. And I do think also an important thing to mention here would be, if you're listening, is that even though the church defines things sometimes late in history, they define them. It doesn't mean it wasn't present Correct. earlier. And right. so this is a, a very ancient uh, Christian teaching that goes all the way back to the beginning. And one of the ways you kind of see that is that uh, both the Western church, so the Roman church, but also the Eastern churches really saw this. Uh, and they, they have this tradition that goes back all the way to the time of the apostles, that Mary is assumed body. And this is what we're talking about today. So if you don't know what the assumption is, a lot of Catholics out there, it's easy to con confuse the assumption with the ascension. So the ascension is when Jesus ascends to heaven. Uh, By his own power. Under his own power, 40 days after the resurrection. The assumption is where Mary is brought into heaven by the power of God, body and soul. So, so it's uh, like the joke, what happens when you assume? Uh, you go to heaven. You go straight to heaven. <laughs> you go straight to heaven. That's a really, that's a total priest joke. That's right. Dad jokes. Bringing them out. Bringing Did them I ever out. tell you how I started my homily? Sorry, I keep changing the subject. That's okay. I, uh, I'm so embarrassed by this. I didn't want to tell you, but now I kind of have to tell you. You need to tell me. Uh, so last week or two weeks ago, right? Bread of Life Discourse. I started my homily this way. I was like, man, all this talk about bread is sure making me hungry. <laughs> wow. So, you know, these I have are the this, kind of jokes that make people leave the church. Exactly. You know? I have this theory. That's why people don't leave the church because of these other things. They leave, they leave because of bad priest jokes. Probably true. Yeah. Yeah. People are now going to start seeking your mass instead of my mass. That's, that's a good point. I don't really know what to say to that. I don't think that's actually true. So anyway, so let's get back to the assumption though. So before, we, and maybe even before we get into like the particulars of this dogma, Right. Why, like, why do you think people sometimes they just, and maybe especially we can speak a little bit to our Protestant brothers and sisters. What is it that's important for us to, in Mary in general? Like why, why is that like just an important reality for us to, to have Mary in our life as Catholics? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I think, How, do you get that question a lot? Um, I haven't recently, but. Um, Coming out of seminary, you're kind of surrounded by seminarians and Catholics and. Right. Yeah. So I, I actually went to a Protestant school from first grade through eighth grade. And that was one question that would come up is Catholics worship Mary. And yeah. so why is Mary important? Well, first of all, Catholics do not worship Mary, but we want to give proper veneration, proper honor, specifically for her role in salvation history. Yeah. Why? Because she is the mother of God right? and immaculate conception. She was immaculately conceived without the stain of any sin. Right. So she's important for us because of her role in salvation history. And just like, you know, what I'll say to a lot of Protestants is, um, why is it that you ask for someone's prayer so much, right? right? Because we know prayers can help people, but how much more then can the prayers of those in heaven 
help us, right. specifically Mary, who is sinless. So she intercedes for us. She is mother, uh, mother of us, mother of the church. Um, but she also, we also venerate her in honor of her role in salvation history. Yeah. Amen. And I do think, and one, one more distinction, and then I want to jump a little bit more to some of the, the meat on this. But I do think a really important thing is the, the distinction between latria and dulia, mm-hmm. right? And so these are Greek words. So latria is where we get the word for liturgy. And that's, that really means worship. And the, the church is very clear that latria is something that only belongs to God. And so we, don't, we do not give latria to Mary. We don't. Dulia, right, means honor. Right. And so <clears throat> the church would say, there are things that we should honor. It would actually be uh, inappropriate for us to not honor certain things. Certain things are worthy of honor. Um, Paul will say that in Romans. He'll say we should give uh, honor to whom honor is due. Uh, but then the church makes a distinction of dulia is honor, but then there's hyperdulia. Right. And hyperdulia is how they describe our relationship to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Hmm. And that she, and honestly, like she has a unique place in all of salvation history. Uh, and that's kind of what I want to get at today is uh, also to the, some of the details around the assumption and what that means. And why is that, why is that important for you today? You're driving in your car today, kids are in the back seat. Why should the assumption matter? And I think, I think that's actually a really important kind of question for us. Uh, and that's, that's, that's really going to, going to help us, I think, dive into, into this dogma, uh, of what the assumption is about and why Mary is so important in our, in our faith, in our life. Um, one thing I can start us off with, some of you heard this, this goes all the way back to origin. It might go to Irenaeus. I forget if Irenaeus says this as well, but you have that image there's a classic image of the sun and the moon. And so, uh, Mary right, is um, in this image, we kind of see Jesus as the sun, right? He's the, an S-U-N. Right. He's also the S-O-N. But <clears throat> the, the interesting thing about the moon is that it's, you can look at the moon, but you don't, you don't want to look at the sun. Hmm. I wouldn't recommend it. Yep, that's uh, how you need new corneas and stuff. <laughs> exactly, new corneas. That could be our band name. Let's start it. New cornea. But the, the moon reflects the light of the sun. Right. And the, the early church uses this image for Mary, is that Mary's like the moon, that she reflects the light of Christ with a borrowed light. It's not her own light. It's something that, that comes from God. And that's what the saints do, right? The, the saints, all of them, they actually can help us to understand God because they reflect his light in their life. And it makes it something kind of tangible and concrete uh, in our own lives. Yeah, well said. Uh, and just to add one thing is, not only do they reflect the light of Christ, the light of the sun, but they don't get that light from themselves. They can't right. produce their own light. So it's always uh, a pointing back to the one who's greater. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, so Mary, one of the things I think is important to, to lay out here is that the, the assumption has an inherent logic that's tied to the Immaculate Conception. Right. Um, so Mary, again, this is something that Catholics confuse is they think, well, Jesus is the one who's conceived without sin. That's true, but that's kind of obvious because he's God. Uh, but we believe that Mary was also conceived without sin. No stain of original sin clung to her. Um, 
So, so how, do you want to, how do you explain that to people? If, you, if people ask about, hey, how do you know that Miriam is immaculately conceived? Um, that's a great question for you. No, just kidding. <laughs> Excellent question. Excellent question. Um, yeah, that is a really good question. So usually the way I explain this is uh, from an argument of fittingness that because Mary is mother of God, it would make sense. It would be fitting for her also to be without sin. Wait, for, say the first part again. It, from an argument of fittingness. So uh, because she's mother of God, okay. she gives birth to the God-man, he who is God, he who is without sin. Yep. It's fitting for her also to be without sin. Yep. Um, that's typically my route of explanation, but... I like the... Uh, there's two ways I think I like to look at this, maybe even three. So you get double today with immaculate conception and assumption because they are tied. If you're out there listening, the assumption really is tied to the immaculate conception. And so uh, I, the way I like to talk about that, that, that fittingness, because it is fitting, but I think the Bible is even stronger on this, is that you can't really dwell in God's presence if you have sin in your life. Mm. So if you, if you have sin, you are excluded from the presence of God. And so a, a, a couple of examples of this would be the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sin, they're cast out. Right. But they cannot, and it's not just like God has this arbitrary punishment, you know, go to your room. Hmm. It's actually that, that Adam and Eve cast out of the garden uh, is, a, is a consequence and it's a mercy where they can't dwell in God's presence. Yeah. God's presence is incompatible with sinfulness. So you have that, um, which by the way, mirrors, right? The Jews being cast out of the promised land. Yeah. Right. The story of Adam and Eve is the same story as the Jews. So the Jews, because they have committed such grave, they get to a place of such grave sin against God and his commandments. In the year 587 BC, they're going to be brought into exile uh, and they're going to go east, just like Adam and Eve leave the Garden of Eden and they go east. So they're cast out. Uh, There's a bunch of other examples. Uh, In Exodus chapter 19, the Jews arrive at Mount Sinai and they have to be purified before they can go to the mountain where God's at, which by the way is the same in Exodus three, where Moses comes to the burning bush. Moses take off your shoes for the ground on which you were standing is holy. Uh, Isaiah six, Isaiah finds himself in God's presence, but before he can really dwell there, he has to be purified. So an angel takes a coal, burns his lips on and on and on. In the new Testament, you have uh, two quick examples would be Luke chapter five when Jesus performs a miracle of, of catching a fish on Peter's boat, Peter turns to Jesus and he says, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. And Peter's aware that he can't really be in God's presence. Yeah. Even if he's not fully sure who Jesus is yet, he knows there's something divine there. And then one last one, cause we could go on this forever would be at the end of revelation. The end of revolution Re- revelation tells us that in the heavenly Jerusalem, Nothing sinful or unclean can enter it. Uh, you can't be in God's presence and, and, and be around sin. So. so Mary, right, is the fulfillment of this. She's going to have Jesus dwelling inside of her. And so the uh, St. John Damascene really saw that the burning bush, I love this image. I have an icon of Moses at the burning bush. And the burning bush in this icon 
is actually Mary. And what St. John Damascene says is that Mary is just like the burning bush. In fact, the burning bush was a prefigurement of her because the fire of God is in this bush, but it's not consumed. That's really Isn't that cool. beautiful? That is really I beautiful. love that. And so Mary is much like the burning bush. And I think, and I'm talking too much, but that's par for the course. This is why Mary is important. If you're a Protestant out there, right? If you don't understand these things, Mary reveals in a beautiful way to us what the Christian mystery is. She shows us what it means to be a Christian, which is why she's so bound up with the church that she's this perfect image of what it means to have life in Christ. When she says yes to, to the angel Gabriel and to God in Luke chapter one, God comes to dwell inside of her. And what does it mean to be a Christian except for God to dwell inside of us, right? Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me, right? And it, something of being a Christian means that God has to dwell inside of us. Okay. So that's immaculate conception. How am I doing there? Does that make sense? Are you tracking? Oh, absolutely. I think that sounds great. Um, And just one thing to, that comes to mind for me is Mary, because she receives Christ in her womb, she becomes the first tabernacle. Right. In the sense of the dwelling place of God in a church, you know? So uh, I love the connection with the burning bush. I've never heard that before. Uh, But even thinking of, the tabernacle, Moses' tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, Mary becomes that, which is why we right. say she's the Ark as well, the Ark of the Covenant. And Yeah. The early church fathers love talking about that. Mm. Yeah, so there's a great verse in the New Testament for this. So um, Hebrews 12, 29 says, for our God is a consuming fire. Mm. And Hebrews there, right, is really going to be thinking of the burning bush. And then in, at, uh, in Exodus 19, when God shows up, he shows up with fire at Mount Sinai. And of course, in the New Testament, on the day of Pentecost, when God appears, he appears in fire. Hmm. And this is such good stuff. I almost just want to pause and say, being a Christian, right, is not just about believing the right thing. Of course, that matters. Having faith, of course that matters. Surrendering yourself to God, that's, that's at the heart of the Christian life. But there's more than that. And I think this is why Mary is so important to us, is that Mary is this exemplar where the, the mystery of what it means to be a Christian is experienced in her life. And we learn this way, right? To be a Christian, if I say yes to God, like Mary does in Luke 1, God doesn't just be like, okay, cool. Now you can go to heaven when you die, but he comes to dwell inside of her. Um, anyway, powerful stuff. Yeah. Powerful stuff. Okay. Any more, what else on the Immaculate Conception? Uh, just to ground us in scripture, the uh, kind of the, the main verse that is often used, however, it's still kind of debated would be Jude 24. Uh, which says this, now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you without blemish before the presence of his glory with rejoicing. That word blemish yeah. in the Latin would be maculae, mm. which means sin, stain, blemish. And so we call Mary the immaculate without blemish, without stain, because God 
who is able to keep you from falling, meaning God preserved Mary from all stain of sin before Christ merits on the cross. Yeah. So it's, um, it's a retroactive grace that through her immaculate conception, she receives that grace because of Christ's merit on the cross. Yeah. So we believe that's an important thing to say too. We believe that Jesus did save Mary. Correct. Some, some Protestants will caricature this and they'll say, well, if, if Mary doesn't have sin, that means Jesus isn't her savior. Um, the church believes that Jesus did save her and it uses the word prevenient grace. And so, so Jesus saved her in a different way than he saved the rest of us, but he still saved her. Correct. Yeah. And so the, that's, that's a great point. I like that. I, I, you know what? I don't usually use Jude for that. <laughs> really? There's a similar verse in Ephesians, uh, twice in Ephesians, uh, if I can find it. Um, yeah. So in Ephesians, even as he chose Ephesians one verse four says, even as he chose us, meaning God, in, in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. Without, without blemish. Yep. Yeah. And there's going to be a similar, uh, in, verse, in, cha- in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Paul says, uh, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Mm-hmm. Now the Greek word people are used to me doing Greek, not Latin. That was mm-hmm. good. The Greek word there is, if I remember it is amamos mm-hmm. uh, and Mary. And so the church, right? People are like blown away. How could you believe that Mary is without blemish or without sin? Well, Paul tells us that's what we're going to be. And which comes back again, like Mary shows us the mystery of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, she shows us that, uh, that when we draw near to God's presence, that we are made without sin. And imagine that this is, I love this. I talk about how Pius XII giving us this dogma of the assumption and highlighting this. One of the biggest, I don't know about you in your life, in my life, one of the biggest moments of frustration and despair, it can be about the world out there. But I think more profoundly, it's just when I feel like I am just messed up. And I can have these moments of like, gosh, why am I not the man I'm supposed to be? And there's this really profound brokenness in my own life. And part part of redemption, right, is this hope that those parts of myself that I just can't seem to to correct and make what they should be, that someday God's going to make me without blemish, mm-hmm. without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And I'm, and honestly, even just talking today to you, Father Sean, I'm like, that almost makes me emotional. I'm, that's like, I can't wait for that. Right. To wake up without back pain. Says Deacon Trevor. <laughs> um, do you have back pain too? I do. Um, yeah. Wow. I mean, tall, you know. Uh, but I, uh, yeah, I think you're hitting the head, the nail right on the head of just the beauty there. That, uh, that's heaven, right? That's yeah. the without blemish. That's the perfection um, that we're seeking, that we desire. And God uses our time here on earth to help purify us 
um, you know, but even what you're talking about before of um, desiring that one day in heaven that we will be blameless, that you can't be holy or you can't be in the you can't be in the presence of God and have blemish, have stain, yep, have sin. Um, you know, we don't need to talk about this, but just to touch on it, it would be that's part of purgatory, right? That yeah. we could, that we pay the last penny, that we are purified and made without blemish so that we can enter into the holy of holies yep. in heaven. Yeah, and all these things are connected, right? You see the the way that Catholic theology works, all these things are connected. Uh, and so the assumption, right? And hopefully if you're listening to this, maybe you've drawn some of these dots, right? And so if if the uh if the reason that we are separated from God is sin, right? And and Adam and Eve are driven out of God's presence because they can't endure God's presence. If Mary, through the mercies and the graces of God, in light of the merit of the cross, uh, the death and resurrection of Christ, if Mary is preserved from these things, then she is fitting, is fitting for her to be assumed into God's presence. Who was it, Morgan, yesterday? Morgan Rogers, shout out. She was like, she was asking me yesterday. She's like, do you think Mary just got freaked out? She's like, oh my gosh, what's happening? And she like put her arms up. She's like, woo. You know, like Mary just floating. And I'm like, I, I somehow don't think so, but I don't have any like scriptural proof for that. Right. You know? That's so funny. <clears throat> Morgan has a wild imagination. She does have a wild imagination. But that does bring up a good question. And, if you want to talk about it, we can of, of uh, the dormition of Mary, right? Yeah. Which is the typical word in the Eastern church. Right. I, yeah. What do you think about that? So the dormition meaning uh, one who falls asleep. So the question is, did, so the assumption, the doctrine of the assumption, Mary is assumed body and soul into heaven. It doesn't answer the question whether Mary died of physical death in her body. Yep. So like, who is it? Elijah and... Enoch. Enoch are taken up into heaven when they're still alive in the yep. Old Testament. Was Mary assumed that way? Did she die or did she not die? Was she preserved a natural death or did she fall asleep? Um, did she experience a bodily death? And then after her death, she was assumed right. and soul into, Denver, uh, into heaven. So that, yeah, that's the question. Um, and Pius XII left that intentionally ambiguous Correct. when he wrote the, the encyclical on this. Right. Yeah. Munificentissimus Deus. Yep. Nice. Nice. I don't know if I said that right. I tried. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Actually, either. Yeah. 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 If you don't know, just be confident, right? Deacon Trevor's in the other room. He's probably making fun of us right now. I'm sure he is. Deacon Deacon Trevor has very good Latin. He does. It's the best. Um, But yeah, I, I don't know what I really... Uh, think of that necessarily of the uh, dormition dormition yeah right um that's typically the way it's thought about in the eastern church yep dormition meaning what though that mary did suffer yeah so she dies she kind of falls asleep of her own accord from what i understand and then she's assumed yep i don't i'm not an expert on that that question honestly not that i'm an expert on much of anything but yeah, that's, that is in the East, right? There, there's this idea that Mary really did go through some kind of human death. She really did. Uh, but then she's assumed. Yeah. And I think, I think an important thing today 
with the assumption, and you know, we could talk more about some, there's not a ton of scripture on this. It's more from the early tradition of the church. In Revelation 12, Mary does appear in heaven. And we could reference that really quick. Um, popular verse here, if you don't know it, it's one that's cited a lot. And this um, would be the first reading on Sunday on the Feast of the Assumption. Mm. Revelation 12. It says, uh, Revelation 12, 1, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was with child, and she cried out in pings of birth, in anguish for delivery. Goes on a little bit. It's going to talk about the dragon. Uh, and then in verse 5, it says, she brought forth a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now, that's a giveaway to who this is in that, because that is Psalm 2, verse 9, which is a psalm about the Messiah. And so when you see a woman who gives birth to a child who's going to rule all nations with a rod of iron, that's a very clear scriptural way of saying this is the mother of the Messiah. Um, And so you have Mary appearing in heaven, um, which is kind of one of the traditional scriptural witnesses to this, that Mary really was assumed. Uh, into heaven. Um, for our life, and I think this is this is kind of for me where the rubber hits the road, and I don't know if Pius XII was getting at this when he wanted to re-emphasize this in the life of the church, but one of the things I oftentimes think about this, I don't know if I'm going to preach about this on Sunday or not, but um, the when we if we forget about heaven, we earthly life becomes really bitter and contentious. And I think this is one of the biggest problems today in our culture is that uh, people don't believe in heaven anymore. Right. We don't, we don't believe in heaven. And if we did, we would live a really different life here on earth. Right. If we, if we actually believed heaven was real and it was more real than anything you're seeing right now, you would live differently. And even, even with like our young adults, this is some, usually when people, when I get the typical father, Brian, where's my spouse question. Um, one of the things I always want to say to people is heaven's real. And I know it's, it sounds hilarious now talking to a 27 year old, but when you're 41, I'm like, man, it really does. It's so cliche, but it goes so fast. And I think a big thing that's happening in our country right now is that our politics are so bitter and our cultural fights are so bitter because no one believes in heaven anymore. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And, and to add as well, might be a little controversial, but, but our, that's our how we e- roll. Our, even our response, the nation, the world's response to COVID has put body above soul. Like if we don't have a vision of heaven, a vision right. of the afterlife, if it's just here on earth, then absolutely, let's shut down. Let's make sure I preserve my own life because there's nothing after this. Yeah. Which no, is- I think that's I think that's one of the biggest dynamics around COVID. Yeah. And I think, and very honestly, just and I can be controversial with this too, and I'm just I just will be. Is I get people at Lords on both sides of the vaccination aisle mm-hmm. who are frustrated with me and who have very very strong opinions one way or the other. And what you just said is how I really feel. Mm. As I'm like you guys need to stop fixating so much on only this life. And if you did, things wouldn't be so contentious because yeah. literally, if you live a good life, you're going to live forever. Yeah. You're going to live forever. And the, for me, the vaccine question is not painfully obvious, which way to go. 
Sure. I lean, I understand the arguments. We don't know everything in the vaccines. And I understand people who feel like there's, there's questions about the, the, um, about ethical implications. The bishops have come out and said it's, it is permissible for Catholics to receive these vac- vaccinations. I think there's legitimate questions people have about, well, this isn't approved by the FDA yet. We don't know the long-term effects. Fine. For me, I'm like, I, it makes sense to get the vaccine. I just think it does. I think it's worth it. Um, but even if you disagree with me, my bigger point, I think a m- more important point than that is it's not a hundred percent clear and we're going to live with God for all of eternity. And if we just remembered that, I mean, I just feel like at Lord, sometimes there's people who are just, they, if you have the opposite opinion than them on the vaccine, look out. I don't, they don't even want to talk to you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's almost like a social crucifixion that happens. And, um, just even last night when we were talking of that, uh, you know, you can get into a conversation with someone where they start pontificating for lack of a better word of what they think about whatever the vaccines, whether you should get it, whether you shouldn't. And, uh, they start to assume that you're on the same page as them because right. what'd you say? Like, Oh, you're a decently intelligent person. You must, you must think the way I think right, about exactly. all things. Yeah. Right. So people do that to me all the time. Right. As pastor. Yeah. They're just like, Oh, father Brian must think the way I do. Right. But I, then I quote Isaiah 55 to them, which is Isaiah 55 is um, for my ways are not your ways, says the Lord, nice. the Lord of hosts. But as high as the heavens are above the earth, so too are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. Mm-hmm. I don't really say that because I'm blasphemous. So too are my thought, my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I wouldn't quote that at them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I think, so and it, closing thoughts on the assumption. Um, maybe just one extra thing to add would be, um, the, so the proper conclusion, if you will, to the immaculate conception would be the assumption. Yeah. The proper conclusion, if you will, to the assumption would be what? The queenship of Mary, Mm. which we celebrate August 22nd, which would be eight days after the assumption. So an octave, the queenship of Mary, we crown Mary, the coronation as queen of heaven and earth. She's assumed body and soul into heaven. She sits at the right hand of Jesus to intercede for us, and she's named queen. She's crowned queen of heaven and of earth. Yeah, I love that. Um, so I do want to encourage all you out there. I know you've, your life is busy. You probably have anxieties right now. You might have anxieties about COVID. You might have anxieties about the coming school semester, uh, finances, who knows, whatever it might be. But may, this this weekend this celebration of the assumption, the, the fat, the absolute truth of the matter is that if you live a good life of faith and hope and love in God, you will live for all of eternity. And if you can set your heart on that and have that elevate your hopes, you can live more freely in this life. And some of those big anxieties that all of us are prone towards, those can be poisonous to our faith and to our, our life in Christ. And so you can let go of those. You can let go of some of those things because you, my friends, uh, in Christ can live forever. Yeah. Amen. Sounds like a mic drop. Mic drop. Mic drop. Well, thanks for tuning in, everybody. I have a little short today because I have to run to a meeting. Uh, send us an email, uh, rant at lordsdenver.org. 
pray for little Gianna Deveni. Uh, she's got two really awkward parents, and that's going to be a cross for her. <laughs> Not just kidding. That's awesome. Uh, but uh, yeah, we'll see you guys next time. Great. Thanks for letting me come back on, Father Brian. Thank you, Father Sean. Okay. Peace.